0: Welcome to Creepy Kentucky. I'm Quinn.
1: And I'm Laura. And uh, do we have anything we want to talk about from like 10 minutes ago when we quit talking (laughs) about the uh, Christmas Uh, gifts you want to definitely take back? Not really. Okay.
0: Yeah. My new job kicks my butt. Makes me tired.
1: Well, yeah, but...
0: Walking five miles a day. Yeah. But I mean,
1: it's, first of all... Like it serves a purpose, it does, which I think is awesome. Yes, and second of all, it pays like a lot more than what you were making. Yes, yeah, At yes, the it nightmare, does. at my nightmare. So you know, there's that. Just need
0: to get you out of
1: that nightmare now. Shit, I uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I think that's the universe. I think plus the other day it was funny. <laughs> somebody was like, somebody said something, and I said, yeah, because Quinn's not here anymore, and they were like. They looked at me and just went like, yeah, we know <laughs> I was like <laughs> Don't have to feel sorry for me
0: <laughs> It's not like I can't function yeah, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like I was such We a st- know <laughs> I was such a staple in that building though, yeah. Like.
1: <laughs> Oh yeah That's When you me. came in
0: Monday through Friday You could count on seeing me there yeah. Me and you there Yeah, Like we were
1: I know, well, I'll just tell you right now uh, yeah, <laughs> they better be grateful. They better, they better be grateful. One of us is still there. Well, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh. <laughs>
0: there we
1: go. Okay. Anyway, so when last we left Verna Gar Taylor,
0: it's been forever. And it's so been forever, so us. no one remembers. We need the uh, last time on yeah, Verna last night
1: on Verna Gar Taylor. Well where we left off um so she had been shot no one knew by whom or how or whatever but the brothers the gar family and the brothers decided to allow the um the prosecutors and the people from the um like the funeral home and the, the coroner and all that to do a an autopsy right on vernon that's where we left off so
0: and they did that weird hand
1: thing oh yeah they did the paraffin test yes the paraffin test that's yeah what's called. they did that well we'll see how that turns out anyway <laughs> all right so uh that night seven men watched the coffin being brought back to the surface in the cemetery Uh, Coroner Ricketts, Sheriff Harrods Sheriff Briggs, John Messmer Coroner Gividen of Oldham County, whatever and (laughs) Doctors Hubert Blades Blades and John T. Walsh stood in the cold watching the men work. So a draft horse was actually brought in to help lift the coffin then the men put it in a hearse and brought it to the McCarty Ricketts funeral home which is still in business by the way. I think it's not called that. I think it's just called the Ricketts Funeral Home, but Mm -hmm. it's still, yeah. Uh, The doctors found that the path of the bullet went through the ventricles and aorta, shattering the seventh rib, the seventh vertebra, uh, with the bullet passing from the left chest to the right of the spine, and the exit wound was also two inches higher than the the? entry wound. So she was shot from below. Yeah. Yeah. They also confirmed the bruise on Verna's inner right thigh. Uh, Although she was shot at close range, uh, indicated by a slight slight powder mark on her skin, they concluded that uh, that Verna's arm length would have made it impossible for her to commit suicide with a heavy pistol like the one they found at the scene. Okay. Also, death was instantaneous, so she could not have made any blood splatters found on the ground at the scene of her death. So, the prosecutor had a choice, like, at this moment, and he decided to go ahead with an examining trial of Denhart, which was set to begin on November 20th. And I had to ask him what an examining trial was. He didn't even know. It's, apparently, it's a trial to decide if there's enough evidence to go forward to a grand jury. Okay. Okay. So, his lawyers, meanwhile, were furious that they had no idea that there was an autopsy performed until they received the findings of it. And no Denhart representative had been called in to be at the autopsy either.
0: What did they think they were going to do with the body? Like, Uh, it's it's a mysterious death. Of course they're going to do an autopsy. (sighs) Yeah.
1: Anyway, they felt that the general was unpopular enough in the area without the asking for another autopsy so they decided to live with the findings um the general was warned against staying in his house so he was taken to Louisville to stay with McCormick who had posted his bond okay um so for his attorneys Denhart had a guy named W. Clark Audie Rose Myers and John Marshall Barry. So, Audie was a former prosecuting attorney turned defense attorney. Myers was a powerful orator who, after this trial, eventually became lieutenant governor of Kentucky. Okay. And John Marshall Berry was a local attorney who was extremely familiar with local politics. And for a brief time, Denhart was also represented by Beckham Overstreet, a Louisville attorney. Um, Overstreet claimed that Denhart hired him on November 11th, but Overstreet withdrew from the legal team in February, claiming that the general owed him $2,500. Uh, and Denhart claimed that Overstreet was a volunteer for the defense, so the attorney filed suit with, was dismissed. And he had like several problems with getting his attorneys paid, so this is nothing new. So the prosecution was led by H.B. Kinsolving. He was a graduate of the Virginia Military Institute, he was a member of the Kentucky troops fighting punitive expeditions against Pacha Villa on the Mexican border. Um, he commanded Company H. Ironically, Clark Audie was second in command. Second in command. Okay. Uh, and also Messmer was a sergeant in the medical corps, and Denhart was the commander of the first battalion. All in this like punitive expedition thing. Um, throughout the trial, he was referred to as captain by the other attorneys. Uh, the Gar family hired two other attorneys to assist the prosecutor ballard clark and jay Wirt turner and they were both popular local attorneys also attorney jimmy thomas helped the prosecution uh one of the problems the defense faced was the lack of access to any tests that the prosecution had done except for the autopsy another problem was their client who was pretty hot-headed okay uh so Beckham Overstreet volunteered to see the coroner at the funeral home and try to get any of the tests released so Overstreet confronted the coroner who only told him that Verna had no gun residue on her hands and that due to the angle of the bullet she did not commit suicide uh, he said that the other items the coat. The piece of road that they'd taken away, the general's wax hand print things, they were still being tested. And as a result, the defense filed for a motion to impound the evidence, which a judge actually denied. The defense then appealed this ruling, uh, which they partially won. The judge ruled that if any items were introduced into evidence at the examining trial, Judge Morgan had to grant a delay so that the defense could examine them. So they had to rely on like circumstantial evidence, not <coughs> any kind of forensic evidence, to get their case to the grand jury at that point. So and on November 20th, a pale, nervous General Denhart arrived at the courthouse in Lagrange and took his seat in the courtroom. So on the other side of the aisle sat Verna's daughters and brothers. Uh, ready to testify were George and Nettie Baker, who were the couple whose driveway the car was pushed into. J.B. Huntley was the man who went to get the battery. And he also called for Smith Kitely when they found Verner's body. And then Smith, Smith, Smith Kitely was the funeral home director that came out. Right. And Dr. Blades was the man who did the autopsy. There were no defense witnesses. And Denhart would not testify on his own behalf. And soon the examining trial began. So, uh, so let's see. The first witness was Barney Browning, and he was the owner of the service station where Verna appeared on the night of her death. Uh, Browning said that Verna had asked for help with the car. Uh, Browning and farmer George Brown had tried to push the car themselves. Uh, There was a man in the car, but he refused to get out and help. And Verna's only comment was he's sick. So, George, oh, that was George Baker, not George Brown, sorry. Uh, George Baker tried to push the general's car with his, and it rolled slowly away. Uh, Baker and his wife left, and then a car came along, which Browning was afraid might hit Denhard's car. However, Browning saw Verna step out in the road and flag the second car down. Browning then closed his door, went to bed, and heard nothing else. Okay. Good night. Okay. So next to testify was George Baker. He said that he had returned to the service station to pick up his wife. Uh, after he saw Verna flag down the approaching car, they drove up and saw that it was J.B. Hundley. Okay. At this point, Denhart had finally gotten out of the car. Verna asked if Hundley could push the car to Lagrange which Hunley didn't want to do with no headlights working on the general's car. So that was when Baker suggested that Hunley lead the way down the road and the Bakers would push uh, Denhart's car into their driveway. Uh, Before the convoy started off, Hunley spotted one of Verna's gloves and handed it to her. Then Baker saw her pick up the other one and get behind the steering wheel. Once they got to the Baker's driveway, Baker and his wife went to their house. Um, 20 minutes later, the Baker's dog, Trixie, began to bark. So Baker went to the door to see what was going on and saw Denhart, quote unquote, walking very fastly, going back this way past the light of my window and my drive that goes down by my yard.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Denhart saw Baker and stopped. The general asked if there was a phone in the house because he wanted to call LaGrange to see when the bat- when the battery was going to be delivered. But that was a weird question because he knew at that point that nobody had a phone anywhere around there. Right. Like, the closest phone was, like, in LaGrange, I think, at that point, that anybody could get to. Anyway, George Baker opted to let... The General and Verna wait in the house, and the Denhart said, "I guess not." Uh, so Baker went back to his chair by the fire. Uh, so several minutes later, he saw the headlights of a car approaching his driveway. He went to his front room and watched a set of taillights head toward Browning service station. As he was watching the lights turn left and disappeared, he hear, heard a large, gun, a loud gunshot. A few minutes later, he walked outside to see if he could tell what had happened. And it was like there was a gap of time between when he heard the shot and when he walked down. It was a very dark night, there was no moon, and as he walked toward the stalled car, he heard another noise that sounded like a pop gun or a small rifle. Even in the dark, Baker, Baker could see Denhart. It looked like he was turning around or stepping up to his car. Denhart asked if he had heard the shots. The general added, "Wasn't that second shot fearful?" Which Baker was like, "No, the second shot was less was quieter than the first one." But he didn't say anything. Uh, The general said that the lady had gone back to get a glove, which is weird, too, because she already had the glove. Yeah. And he told Baker that he had a gun in his glove box, but it was gone. Did Baker have a flashlight? Well, Baker didn't, but he went to get a lantern. In the meantime, Hundley arrived with a LaGrange mechanic. His name, I mean, okay, Cuba Shaver was his name. (laughs) Cuba. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Denhart, Hundley, and Shaver drove up and down the road, but they didn't see Verna. The general stood and watched while the men worked on the car, which took longer than expected. Baker testified that as Denhart stood by the car... See, that's the thing, like... So, Baker testified that, like, he saw the general during the second shot. He was... He, he saw him, so he knew he didn't shoot anything. But at this point, he repeated several times as he was standing by the car, she was the finest woman I ever knew. Several times. After that, anyway, I don't, yeah. After they got the battery installed, Hundley insisted on looking for the lady uh baker handed him his lantern went to check on his own wife and when he got back he saw hunley and shaver with a flashlight walking on either side of the road and denhart was about 30 feet behind walking down the middle of the road yeah okay and hunley eventually found verner's body in a ditch next to the old road bin. uh one glove was in her left hand one glove was by her feet one shoe was on her foot, one was between her arm and her body. A large pistol was nearby. When Denhart caught up, he said, Ain't that awful? And nothing else. Yeah. Hundley went to LaGrange at this point for help. Uh, as he was driving off, he yelled that they shouldn't leave Verna's body alone. However, Baker wanted to check on his wife again, so he went back to his house, and Denhart and Shaver followed, leaving Verna's body unguarded in the ditch. Uh, they found a set of keys and a flashlight at the side of the road. Denhart admitted they were his. Uh, when Hunley returned with the funeral director, Smith Kitely, Baker heard Denhart ask about the ring, and Baker then watched as Verna was loaded into an ambulance. Um, so. A
0: whole lot of good that Andy Yeah.
1: Yeah. The next witness was Nettie Baker. Um, as she was in the house most of the night, she didn't really recall, you know, a lot. But she did recall that it was about 30 to 35 minutes after she arrived home that she heard the gunshot. And it was about five minutes after that that George went outside to investigate. Uh, J.B. Hundley was the next witness. His testimony agreed with that of George Baker. He did add, though, that he heard Baker remark that Denhart couldn't have killed Verna because Baker was with the general when he heard the last shot. Uh, So Smith Kiteley, the funeral director, then took the stand. He could only um, talk about the night of November 6th from his perspective of being on the scene because of the judge's ruling about the test. Uh, he did, however, identify the forty-five currently in the possession of the police as the gun found next to Verna's body. Uh, the next witness was Dr. Blades. For the first time, the General's Counsel questioned the witness. Uh, Rhodes-Mars asked about the discoloration about the gunshot wound, and the Dr. Blades admitted the discoloration extended into the wound. So... That kind of indicated a closer shot. Okay. But, anyway. Finally, each side summed up their positions. Uh, Rose Ma- Rhodes Meyer said that there was no proof that anyone besides Verna had the gun. Uh, conversely, Jimmy Thomas said that Verna could not have shot herself. And that if a man shot his wife in Henry County, he'd be in jail in Henry County. <laughs> the audience responded... By applauding and cheering. (laughs) Yeah! Yeah. If he killed his wife in In County, that's where he's going to stay in prison. In in Henry County. Henry County, yeah! (laughs) Henry County! Yeah. Woo! (laughs) That's kind of what it sounded like. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I can see it now. Yeah. The judge, anyway, the judge held the case to a grand jury hearing in January and he refused to renew Denhart's $25,000 bond. So, the judge decided to allow the general to stay in the Jefferson County Jail instead of the local jail both for safety from angry locals and for access to better medical care. At the end of the night, escorted by state and local lawmen, Henry Denhart was taken to a Louisville jail. <laughs> yeah. So, from jail, Denhart issued several statements proclaiming his innocence to the despair of his attorneys who wished he'd just shut up. Yeah. In the meantime, they filed a motion to have him granted bail or else they should get access to the commonwealth's test results. And the state attorneys actually agreed to grant him bail rather than give the general's team access to the state's evidence. Um uh, Meanwhile, there was the problem of keeping the general away from his home, where he was extremely unpopular. Uh, So a plan was hatched to sell his farm to the state for a new reformatory in LaGrange. Okay. And the general said no to that. So they bought their reformatory land somewhere else, I guess. I guess so. One of the one of the problems for the prosecution was the second quieter pop gun shot that George Baker heard, uh, but they found out, however, that some boys had seen the general have a pistol that looked like a pin, although two of the boys weren't able to describe the pin gun. One boy was, but this actually ended up having, like, no effect on the jury whatsoever, so I don't, I don't even know why I brought it up. Anyway.
0: So, did they figure out where that second gunshot came from? No.
1: No. What the
0: heck? That's weird. Yeah.
1: There's a lot they never figure out about this case. Like, there's just... Oh, my God. There's just things that no one knows. Um, Anyway, in January 1937, it began raining. It rained so much that that period of history became known as the Great Flood of 1937. It affected states along uh, the Ohio River from western Pennsylvania to Missouri. Okay. Uh, As this was occurring, the grand jury met to consider an indictment against Denhart. In addition to those who testified in the earlier hearing, Clarence Roberts was handwritten on the list of witnesses and he was the teen who'd seen the general's pen gun thing. The grand jury proceedings were held in secret with just the 12 men of the jury, the judge, the prosecutor, and his stenographer in the room. Okay, so after testifying, Clarence Roberts revealed to the press that the prosecuting attorneys had brought him forward because he'd seen the general's pen, thus letting the defense know what their explanation for the second shot was going to be. And after the testimony, the jury amid- unanimously agreed to indict the general for murder. Uh, when the defense asked for their copy of the transcript, though, uh, Jimmy Thomas said he must have forgotten to tell the stenographer to write anything down, so they didn't get it.
0: Oh no! <laughs> yeah.
1: So I thought the whole point of a
0: stenographer was to write things down. Yeah,
1: it was. It was
0: yeah. You have to be told to do your job. Stenographer.
1: Yeah. Oh, they were just playing dirty tricks on the oh. defense at that point. Yeah. Um, it was late in the day when the jury made their decision, so the judge waited to arraign Denhart until the next day. At that time, the judge set the trial to begin that next Monday. However, the flooding in the area was getting so bad that any thought of a trial had to be put on hold while the people of the state coped with the flood uh denhart's attorney john berry for example was head of the henry county red cross so he was busy and i mean just overwhelmed with trying to find help for all the refugees pouring into the county from like the flood prone areas and john messmers house was in the flood uh zone in louisville uh in actuality about 40 percent of louisville was in the flood zone and the ohio river Finished at over 57 feet above flood stage. Uh, And Denhardt's trial ended up being postponed until late April. Um, So during this time, Denhardt decided to go to Florida. This, along with the fact that while his case was taking up three attorneys full time, the general had not been charged for a fee for any (laughs) services yet. Uh, made people even more resentful of his special treatment especially in the face of the flood and how they were like you know suffering and i mean especially considering they thought he'd done it so they were like you know you killed this woman you skipped out you're in florida now just living it up yeah we didn't do anything wrong and you know Okay, so during this time, both prosecutors and the defense team tried to get a sense of the timeline of events. So, on the Friday of her death, Verna and the general headed first to a friend's house to pick up a package. Verna was going to return it to a Louisville department store for her friend. Then she stopped by the laundry to attend to some business. Um, The next stop was at the Kentucky Military Institute, where she settled the institute's laundry account. Okay. Uh, next, she was supposed to have a lunch engagement with a friend. However, the general called the friend and said that Verna wouldn't be able to come to the lunch because she had a headache. Later, Verna went to her bank to deposit some money. The banker described her as always very pleasant and said she was no different that day. Uh, next, she ran into an attorney she knew while walking downtown. The general was nowhere to be seen, in Louisville, I should point out. Okay. She and the general were then seen in a restaurant in the St. Matthew's neighborhood. Um, this was at around 6 p.m. They left there at around 6.30, and the next time anyone saw her, she was knocking on the door of Browning's service station at about 8.45 to 9.00. There were two questions with which the prosecution team couldn't answer about the timeline. So why had the general rented a room at the Kentucky Hotel for an hour that afternoon, and what had they done between six thirty and eight forty-five to nine? The drive from Louisville to Lagrange should only have taken an hour, thereabouts. Yeah, Yeah. or somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yep, <laughs> yep.
0: It was, what's her face, the lady in blue.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, oh, she's coming back. I know. She Don't is. you worry. <laughs> no, no. There wasn't as much about her in that book, though, as I thought there was going well, to be. I was, I was very disappointed. Okay, so Denhart, meanwhile, wrote a thirty-three-page memorandum <laughs> about his relationship with Verna. Leading up to the day of her death, they the author of the book I read called it Rambling. Uh, he portrayed it was
0: only five pages shorter <laughs> than your <laughs> yeah, notes not this
1: story. <laughs> yeah. and I managed to tell the whole freaking thing. He portrayed himself as the wrong man, and everyone else is being responsible for what happened. Uh, he laid much of the blame at the feet of Chester Woolfolk, the laundry worker with whom Denhart claimed Verna had been having an affair for two years after her husband's death until when she met the general. Among other things, he claimed that Dakar set them up and that Chester Woolfolk had a thing for another man. And Denhart claimed that Verna had become more depressed as the day went on. He said she went for a drive after they left Louisville, but that still didn't explain the missing two and a half plus hours. He said Verna asked him to go to the Baker house at one point and check on the battery, and he heard the shot as he was standing at Baker's house. So the defense attorneys had a, chore, had a choice to make. Should the general testify or not? If he did, and he was believed, he would ruin Verna's reputation, not to mention Chester folks But... Then he might not be believed. Right. Uh, So, Denhart wanted to move the trial. The judge said no. He felt that there was enough, like, security in Newcastle not to move it. Right. So, Judge Marshall, Charles Marshall, a 30-year veteran of the courts, was to hear the case. On April nineteenth, nineteen thirty-seven, he could he himself could barely find a parking space at the courthouse, oh and there were reporters there from all over the country. Yep.
0: Showing their yep. microphones in your face. Yep. I'm taking your picture.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Something I know nothing about. Judge
1: Gaga. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Judge Gaga. <laughs>
1: yeah. The first order sort of business was to settle the side of the trial, so he decided not to move the trial. The next step was to seat the jury, <laughs> and by laying in the day, twelve middle-aged white men had been chosen—eleven, uh, yep. eleven farmers, and one service station owner.
0: That's a real That's, wide variety. Yeah. Well, it is his peers, right? he—he he was a old white guy, middle-aged white guy. Yeah, I should say. Yeah. So exactly. They found his peers. Yeah, they
1: sure did. Trust <laughs> me. Oh, yeah, they did. Uh, the judge asked Dan first. Plea. his plea. His attorney, Rosemeyer, said not guilty. Uh, then there was another motion by the defense. They claimed that since the stenographer was in the grand jury room but not taking notes, since she was in the room illegally and then the indictment should not stand, the judge shot this down. Good. And... By the end of the day, with all of these motions and counter-motions, the vast crowds had left, and only two old men were left in the courtroom audience. <laughs> the judge warned uh, the jury not to talk about the trial, and this was the first day of the trial. Um, the next day, the prosecution opened its arguments. Uh Roy Stewart, a handyman who worked for uh occasionally for the laundry said that Verna's demeanor on November sixth hadn't was no different from any other day, hadn't been any different. So um, not
0: like she was planning on killing right, herself exactly. that exactly. Like I know that thing comes up like yeah. just out of the blue, but right. you don't typically act all like
1: Yeah. Happy
0: go lucky.
1: And then boom. If you're gonna kill
0: yourself yeah, later that day
1: yeah so so next witness was mary Pryor, her daughter she claimed that her mother was not depressed had not talked about suicide uh she described the argument that i talked about earlier in the last episode between her mother and denhart and the defense suggested that perhaps verna hid her depression from her daughter and mary Pryor uh ridiculed that idea and the defense asked about Chester Woolfolk and like his presence in the household, because at this point they're trying to introduce Chester Woolfolk into the story as right. much as possible right uh The next witness was Maud Bell, who'd worked in the laundry for many years she said she also said Verna's demeanor hadn't been any different in the weeks before her death. Um, next up was Frances Verna's younger daughter. The defense once again brought up Chester Wolfolk, trying again to tie him to the Taylor household. Uh, The next two witnesses were Barney Browning, George Baker. Uh, Baker told, you know, they both step by step the same story that they had told, you know, in the examining hearing. Uh, One thing he mentioned... Was that one thing that Baker mentioned? Was that as Hunley and Shaver worked on the battery trying to get the car started so they could look for Verna? Right. Uh, Denhart stood there and said, My, my, ain't that awful. The finest woman I ever knew. Yeah.
0: But
1: so this he was knew. They hadn't found he her. knew at that time that she was dead. Yeah. Like, that's one of the things about the story. Like,. He knew that she was dead, even if he didn't do it. Like, it's... From where her body was, it's hard to picture him actually getting there and getting back to the baker's house. Right. But he knew she was dead, somehow.
0: must have had something to do with it. Yeah. Whether that be he paid someone.
1: See? Oh, there you go. I always, too, wondered about his sister. Like, his sister was super protective of him okay so another set of big witnesses uh were bernard lottie shepherd they were in a car that drove past the scene they drove by the baker's house at uh, some point between two minutes and ten minutes before the loud gunshot uh they did not see anybody on the road or by the car so this testimony only added to the mystery where were verna and the general when this happened yeah If the general killed her, he would have had to chase her down from the time after the car passed to the time of the shot. So, if it was 10 minutes, it would have been kind of a challenge for him. If it was two minutes, it would have been virtually impossible for him in the shape he was in. Right. So, next, J.B. Hunley was called. And in the time between the last trial and this one where he testified, Hunley had moved to Akron, Ohio... And since the incident, he had written multiple times to the defense team telling them that he needed money and he was happy to testify about what Baker had said about the general not being able to be, oh. you know, not having been done. Yeah. Um, there is no indication of where it, whether the defense team actually paid him. That's the thing, too. There's okay. no idea. Yeah. Um, So anyway, the Baker, he talked about Baker. He did mention Baker's statement about uh, how Denhart couldn't have done it because he was with Baker when he heard the second shot. And uh, the prosecution and the defense tangled over whether Baker should be allowed to explain his statement, but he was dismissed before any explanation was made. So. Um, so the next day of the trial, it was clear that the defense's plan of asking questions about Chester Woolfolk had paid off, at least among the newspaper reporters. Um, they asked locals about Chester, and the locals were not thrilled by these questions, and they either out and out lied, gave noncommittal answers... And uh, the prosecution didn't really know what to do with Chester either. They actually kept him hidden all day so that there was no way that the defense could subpoena him. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) The witnesses who appeared on the second day of testimony included Sheriff Briggs and Roy Gar. Both were there to testify to the heel prints on the side of the road. The defense objected since the crime scene had not been secured. But the judge allowed the testimony. Um, Briggs' testimony went well for the prosecution, but Roy Gar, however, was interrupted by the defense several times and finally ended up having to get up and demonstrate the heel prints, like in the courtroom, like in front of the the judge's stand. Um, Next was the testimony about the fountain pen gun. The prosecution was disappointed when the judge declared most of it irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, next up was... So, we still don't know about the second shot. That's... Next, that's
0: very strange yeah, to
1: me. Yeah. Next up was funeral director smith Caitley. He testified uh, by show and showed Verna's bloodstained clothing in the courtroom. The prosecution showed that there was no... There were no powder burns on her clothing... However, the defense focused on Mesmer's paraffin test, introducing doubt into the method he'd used to do the test were his hands clean. Next was Coroner Ricketts, who described the finding of the spots on Denhart's coat and the tear on Verna's slip. Dr. Blades testified as to the autopsy, he talked about the gunshot wound, said that he believed the gun couldn't have been held against Furnace's body. Uh, a defense... Now, this is another weird thing. There was a defense memorandum that was found that was found that was not introduced in the courtroom. Nobody said anything about it, but it mentioned bruises on her neck. Huh. Yeah. Which were never brought up by the prosecution or by the defense at any point.
0: Yeah, this is the first time ever hearing yeah. about there yeah. being.
1: Yeah. The, hmm. Yeah, the next, so, the next day's testimony was all about the prosecution, like, forensic experts. Um, so they had a, one expert testify that the general's gun did release gas from its cylinder even before the bullet exited the chamber. So, it would have released the chemicals into the hands of anybody who shot it. Okay. Uh, Dr. A.J. Miller testified that after tests were conducted on a dead pig, he believed that Verna had been shot from over 9 inches and probably more than 18 inches away. Mesmer and an expert from Pennsylvania both testified about the paraffin test on Verna's and Denhart's hands. The defense's strategy was to confuse the jury and throw the witnesses off their stride while they testified, no matter uh, how unpopular it made them outside the courtroom. So Mesmer was forced to admit that he didn't wash his hands before doing the test.
0: Wash your damn hands, Mesmer. Yeah. Jesus.
1: Hashtag
0: wash your fucking hands. Wash your damn hands.
1: (laughs) After the prosecution... It's in the 1930s. Yes, it's true, true in today. 2020. Wash your, your hands. <sighs> Thank
0: you for coming to my TED Talk yeah. about washing Watching your hands. Your hands.
1: <laughs> <laughs> After the prosecution witnesses finished, uh, the defense took over. So first, they had the jury visit the scene of the crime because they felt that upon seeing the actual distances involved... Doubt would be cast upon the ability of the aging general to do the murder. Yeah. So, fair enough. Uh, so, next, Den Hart took the stand. Oh, Lord. So, he was led through questions about his service to the state. Then the defense asked him about his relationship with Verna. Right. He claimed that there had not been any problems between them until November 5th, when Verna was upset because Chester Woolfolk told her he was in love with her uh he said that he would not let either one of them get they would not he would not let verna get married to the general The general claimed that the next day when he went to fetch her for the trip to louisville she had a headache and said she'd not slept the night before because she was so worried denhart claimed that uh verna oh the general claimed yeah that verna had told him that if it upset the general he could have his ring back but he said no uh, at one point they had a tire puncture and the general drove to a garage uh, when he got back to the car verna had the gun compartment open glove compartment open and he had his gun in her, or his gun in her lap he urged her to keep the appointment with her cousin to have lunch and the the he ended up calling but she asked him to call and cancel for her uh, they went to lunch at the walgreens in the steel box. So, returning to the scene of the crime. Um, But Verna was only able to drink some tea. Okay. And then Verna went to the bank, and then the couple split up, meeting back at the car at 4.30. And at this point, no one, not even the prosecution, mentioned the hotel room that the judge had rented for, like, an hour. Huh. Um When the general got back to the car, he claimed that Verna was slumped back between the seat and the door, completely depressed.
0: Or with a headache. Yeah.
1: (laughs) He said he tried to get her to go to the country club for dinner, but she said no.
0: Because she had a headache. Yeah.
1: He claimed she threatened suicide on the way home, and instead of going straight home, she decided to drive around for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. The car stalled, and Verna went to the service station for help. Denhart said he did not help because he had had a cold for a while. Uh, when Huntley went for a battery, Denhart said he asked her if she wanted to go with him, with Huntley, and she declined. She then supposedly wanted both of them to commit suicide. She claimed that she threw her arms around, or he claimed that she threw her arms around him, and claimed he was the best man she'd ever known.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah
1: and he went towards the baker's house verna called him back but he kept going to the baker's house and when he got back to the car verna was gone and he then quote unquote assumed the worst yeah huh. uh, so when the prosecution cross-examined denhart questions were asked about several topics but they did not go into the do into detail about the hotel room, for instance, because they thought they had enough evidence to convict the general, as it was. Uh, so the defenses experts text testified to the exact opposite of the prosecution witnesses. They stated, for instance, that the general was a pleader and he'd cut his finger while working on the car's battery, which I think is also weird because they clearly said that he hadn't worked on the car's battery. Yeah. He stood and watched the other people work, but he hadn't worked on the car's battery. But
0: yeah, he cut his but finger. But he cut
1: his finger on the battery. So, like Which wasn't. Yeah. Ugh, they also claimed that the blood, I mean, like that's like ugh, there's just so much that doesn't add up. They also claimed that the blood on the general's coat, unless he worked on the battery earlier, but that would, like, that would fall into, like, to the the accomplice theory. If he was messing around with the battery to get the car to so it would stop. Yeah. And allow the the accomplice to, like, catch up. Yeah. They also claim anyway, they claimed that the blood on the general's coat was only about an eighth of a teaspoon's worth. So what you would get from like a bloody finger. After this, the final statements were made and the jury retired to deliberate the verdict. Um, Arguments ended on the evening of May 4th, 1937. On the morning of May 6th, the jury filed in and reported to the judge that they had been unable to come to a verdict. Of course. The jury was originally one for the death penalty, four for life imprisonment, and seven for acquittal. The final vote was five for life vote for it was five for life imprisonment and seven for acquittal. The Gar family was shocked. They had expected a guilty verdict. The general was relieved, obviously, but yeah. was much aged and physically frailer after the accident after the ordeal. Um, So there would be a new trial when the circuit court returned to Henry County in September. Dr. McCormick renewed the $25,000 bond so the general was freed and he and Bertha went home to Bowling Green. On the way, they and his attorney, Rhodes Myers, were being driven by Myers's wife when they were involved in a head-on collision on a narrow bridge. (laughs) No one was hurt, but the car was badly damaged. Oh, no. (laughs) So, in the months after the verdict, public opinion against the general really turned angry uh, in LaGrange and Newcastle, and even in Bowling Green, he was accosted about Verna's death. Uh, Even by the summer, he had still not paid his attorneys And was negotiating with them about fees. And he finally settled with John Barry, for instance, in July for just over $2,000, which I'm sure is a lot less than he actually owed him. Oh, yeah. Um, So, in early July, a lawsuit was filed by one Edward Langan, who we all know and love, acting on behalf of Patricia Wilson's sister. The lawsuit claimed that Denhart, as we know, was responsible for Patricia's Death in an elevator shaft at the Seal Hotel in July of 1936. Well, yeah,
0: we know this story. Yeah,
1: Denhart denied any connection to Wilson's death and blamed the Gar family for being responsible for the lawsuit. The general filed a countersuit, and the matter rested there as the general's September trial approached. Yeah, yeah. By September, both sides. Denhart and the Gars were at a fever pitch of both anger and paranoia. Denhardt had started wearing a bulletproof vest, which does not do you any good if you're shot in certain areas, let me remind no, everyone. Not. Uh, and the Gars were worried that in the next trial Denhardt's defense would t- try to ruin Werner's reputation. On September 20th, 1937... The opening day of the Henry County Circuit Court docket, uh, the Gard brothers wanted to talk to the district attorney about the rumors. However, he was busy all day. Oh. So the brothers left and would reunite at their mother's house close to LaGrange that evening. Uh, so rumors of a defense conference happening in Shelbyville uh, began to arise. Uh, later, John Barry, one of the defense attorneys, confirmed it. So that day, Denhart and his attorney, Rose Myers, left Bowling Green that afternoon and checked into the Armstrong Hotel in Shelbyville that evening. Then he and his attorneys had dinner in the hotel dining room. Uh, meanwhile, John Mesmer in Louisville had heard about the meeting in Shelbyville and wanted to plant a recording device in a room next to the general. Hmm. The Henry County prosecutor said, no, he wouldn't be a party to that. However, Mesmer decided to do it anyway. Good on, Mesmer. <laughs> so so he contacted a detective who worked with him. He was also the son of Dr. Blades. Okay. Mr. Autopsy Man. Yeah. yeah. And explained the idea to him. So Blades went to the Armstrong Hotel, checked in under an assumed name. And got the room next to Denhart. However, the conference between Denhart and his lawyers was over before Blades got his equipment set up. Oh, no. So. Should have had his stenographer
0: come in. And actually tell her to write things down. What's that?
1: He should have slept at a Motel 6 or a Motel. What is it? Should have slept at a Hampton Inn. What was it? The one where you're like an expert all of a sudden.
0: Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I have a <laughs> interesting story about staying at a hotel. Yeah. I don't know if we have time because it's funny. Okay. So we were driving to Baltimore. It was the first time we went to Baltimore. Yeah. We stopped in some reeking town. Yeah. Just like just to get a couple hours of sleep. Right. So we get in the hotel room. We get all situated. And Dave goes to open the closet to get some more pillows. Yeah. And it opened right into someone else's room. Oh, no. And we were in there. Oh, no. And we were like, oh, uh, I'll shut it. And then we, like, put the chair in front of the door just in case. Yeah. And got out of there as quickly as we could the next morning. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a situation where you don't want to hang around. No. That
0: was...
1: (laughs) Yeah, That was kind of a creepy hotel that we <laughs> stayed in. I mean... Mm. <laughs> okay, so the defense conference ended about 9.45. Denhart walked his attorneys downstairs and bade two of them farewell. He didn't know how farewell. Yeah. Then he suggested that he and the third, Rose Myers, walk to a restaurant and get a beer before turning in. Big mistake on his part. Meanwhile, the Gard brothers met up at their mother's house... They then, for some reason, decided to visit Ryan Blakemore, who was Roy Gar's close friend and also the owner of a grocery store, which just happened to be next door to the Armstrong Hotel. Huh. The brothers got to Shelbyville and parked, and then they began walking towards the grocery. The general and his attorney finished their beers and began walking towards the hotel. Suddenly, Meyer shouted, it's the Gar brothers. The General began running in a zigzag pattern towards the hotel, which is where they were headed anyway. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Gars saw the General running towards them, and Doc and Roy, who both had their guns with them, said that they saw the General make a move toward his pocket.
0: He was going for that pen gun. He
1: was. So they fired their guns and they chased him until he collapsed in the hotel doorway. And there's pictures of like the crowds around his body in the hotel Just doorway. Like, what? Yeah. Is that a body? Is that a body? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it is.
0: Isn't that that Den Hart guy? <laughs>
1: yep. <laughs> <laughs> Got what he deserved. Doc then held his gun toward Rhodes Myers, but Myers asked Doc not to shoot him. And Doc lowered his gun. The brothers told him to get to his room, and Myers did so, stepping across the body of Denhart on the way. As a crowd gathered around the body, the Gar brothers found a a patrolman and turned themselves in. (laughs) We shot him. Yeah, we did it. As his attorneys learned about the shooting, they immediately turned around and headed back to Shelbyville. And Dr. McCormick, who would provided the bond, allowing him to go free, helped with the autopsy, which found several bullet wounds, including one behind the general's left ear. And they were all, like, on his back, like, at his back. Okay. They shot him as he was running away. So huh, yeah, on <laughs> Tuesday, the case against Denhart was dismissed <laughs> because well, there was no account of yeah, him being dead, dead at all. As, dead at all, yeah. Meanwhile, crowds gathered outside the Shelby County Jail, hoping to catch a glimpse of the brothers. And Rose Myers spoke to reporters from as far away as Britain about the events of the night. Oh, so. Two services for the general were, uh, were held in Bowling Green, a private one at the house he and Bertha had been living at, and a public one at the Denhart Armory. And unlike other services involving the Denharts, reporters found that locals said their citizens either didn't care about the general or felt that he got what he deserved. It seemed to be the prevailing attitude. Yeah. Uh, the Gar brothers secured a locally renowned lawyer for their defense. Ralph Waldo Emerson Gilbert. He'd been a lawyer for almost forty years and was also a former state representative, U.S. representative, and current state senator, floor leader for Governor Happy Chandler. Oh. The prosecutor who'd been pro- who prosecuted Denhart would also now have to prosecute the Gar brothers, so he recused himself, and the Kentucky Attorney General agreed to lead the prosecution. So, the Gard brothers were arraigned on Friday, September 24, 1937. After testimony from the brothers, Myers, and others, the judge granted bond to them. Uh, the, cr- the courtroom erupted in cheers, and after the bond was posted, the brothers left as free men. Temporarily, anyway. A grand jury was convened, but they could not even agree on an indictment. So this could be a difficult, a different kind of problem for the guards because since, uh, just, since just because no indictment was forthcoming at that time didn't mean that necessarily an indictment wouldn't be forthcoming later. Okay. So the defense sent a note insisting that an indictment be granted so that they would be tried like then. Um... The Kentucky Attorney General for the prosecution knew that it was a long shot that they would get a guilty verdict, but he started the trial anyway, and Roy Garr was the first to be tried. So their best chance for conviction seemed to be to show that the brothers knew that Denhart was holding the defense meeting in advance and that they planned to meet him there. However, there was no obvious sign of that, and Roy insisted that he saw Denhart go for his gun. And although Denhart was clearly shot in the back, uh, defense witnesses claimed that he was also dangerous. And the judge dismissed charges against Jack Gar, who was unarmed that night. And then the jury took just over an hour to find Roy not guilty. Okay. So in February 1938, charges were dropped against Doc who was deteriorating phys- both physically and like mentally yeah uh doc doc came to believe that Denhart had an accomplice in the crime of killing verna
0: okay, so he so, so much he came to the same conclusion we we did. did,
1: yeah, Chester woolfolk was deeply affected by the situation. He uh, grew into a loner, and then he went into the military during World War II. Uh, upon returning, he opened the first dry cleaning business in LaGrange and became wealthy, and he was in his 50s before he got married. Okay. Uh, John Mesmer continued working for the Louisville Police Crime Lab. He rejoined the military during World War II and died of a massive heart attack while stationed at Fort Knox. He was only 48. Oh. Mary Pryor and Francis stayed in LaGrange and raised their families there, not talking about the case at all. Mary Pryor lived in the house across the street from Vern's house and spent long hours looking across the street at it. Hmm. And George, she called it a house of secrets, but she never explained what she meant by that. And George and Nettie Baker's house is still standing, although abandoned, which oh. I've decided I've got to see it now. Yeah. Uh, and Did Hart's attorney always believed that the general was innocent, although the circumstantial evidence was strong. So that is the story of, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And I did not go over now. No. Nope. And I will say that I read a book called Dark Highway by Ann D'Angelo. It's really good if anybody wants to get way more detail about okay. it. Um, there's a picture on the front cover, and she said that, like, a lady went to take the picture for the cover of the book, and she just took a picture of, like, the roadway, kind of where the body was found. Uh-huh. There's a... When she went to to see the picture... A Figure what looked like it was walking down the road. Oh, cool! Like she hadn't seen it, but it was in the picture that That's she cool. took. Yeah, yeah. But it's Andy and Angelo Dark Highway.
0: All right, we have two minutes to wrap this we up. Have two minutes. So, send us an email creepykentucky at gmail.com. Yeah, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at creepykentucky. And until next time, Kentucky.
1: What, what the, the hell? hell?
0: And we're done.